Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is one of those um, delightful passages that we talk about once a year because it's referenced in the New Testament about Jesus' coming. So, this is one of those passages that pastors have the joy of reading once a year again during the Advent season and during the uh, month of December where we uh, get to examine the same passage every year. So, um, every year you will hear from every pulpit frequently the same messages from the same passages. Fair, right? It's, it's a fair thing to do, especially given the fact that this is the turning point in history. Right? Jesus Christ's birth on this earth is the moment when history turns, when everything shifts. Even if you're not a Christian, that's true. Up until the, really, the 1970s, 60s and 70s, uh, we even marked our calendars by this. You had A.D., the year of our Lord, and B.C., before Christ. You had those as standard monikers until the 50s and 70s, really until, uh, I mean, honestly, until the late 1800s when the German uh, kind of form criticism and liberalism started to come into thought, but but. In the United States, at least, you didn't have any shifts until the 1950s. In the um, world at large, there wasn't a shift until maybe the 1920s. Um, and that was given partly because of a world war that was in response to um, <coughs> the German liberalism. So we, we have this, this shift in culture that begins with Christ's birth. But it's, it's a shift across the globe. And it's not because Christianity won. I want to be clear about a couple things before we read this passage. It's not because Christianity won. That's not History is written by the winners, yes. But Christianity didn't win. Not according to the world. Imperialism won. Uh, nationalism won. These, the world didn't become Christian. That's not what happened. It became, at best, it became synchronistic. Combining Christianity with pagan religion. It became that. And, and what you saw was Christianity maintaining strength all throughout history. You can literally go back at the beginning, uh, 33 AD, and just track from the death and resurrection of Christ up to now, and you will see a small sometimes silent, powerful force that shows up at random in small groups across the world pressing against society. So great is their pressing against society that in every country on the globe, this small force of people gets persecuted at some point and pressed back into their hole, from which they pop out again. So it's unstoppable. It continues to rise. 
And is it a world government? No. Is it an ideology? No. Is it a religious function of the spirit or of the the internal workings of a man? No. It is a living and active God who is moving inside His chosen people. And we watch that chosen people rise over and over in history. Unstoppable force. An unquenchable force. Led by a spirit that cannot be overcome. By a spirit that cannot be overcome. So as we come to talk about Christ's appearance on this earth, we need to remember that nothing could stop Him. And if He lives in us, there is nothing that can stop us either. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government... And peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So we dive into this passage and Isaiah is giving this this proclamation to the king who sees everything falling apart. He sees that everything is about to go bad. And Isaiah has already told him, look, virgin's going to bear a son. He's going to bear a son and before he's born, I'm going to do all these things. God's going to do all these things. That, as you know, is the prophecy that Matthew and Luke grab onto. There's a virgin who's going to give birth to a son. Uh, the Hebrew word there in the Old Testament, meaning a young woman, a young woman 
probably before the age of childbearing in the New Testament, clearly interpreting that to mean a virgin. Isaiah is talking a twofold prophecy here, where he's talking about his own wife, who is young and newly, newly married to him, and she is going to bear a son, and before she bears a son, this, all this stuff is going to happen, God's going to show up and do all these things. We covered it two weeks ago when we talked about uh, Isaiah 7 a little bit. And so you can go back and listen to that. But the, uh, here in this passage, he's come full, he's gone on full, and he's going, there's more to say. There's more to say, which is often how it is when we talk about God. We talk about one thing about God, and, and it just kind of snowballs into another, after another, after another, after another, after another, and you end up having a four-hour-long conversation that was supposed to be 20 minutes of, hey, I got this random question from this text in the Bible. Right? This is the way that he works. He just kind of continues to expand on himself. And, and so here in Isaiah chapter 9, we have this uh, opening statement where he says, there's not going to be any more gloom for her who was in anguish. In other words, he paints this picture of a woman giving birth. He paints this picture of a painful birthing process. Now, if you've never been around a woman who is giving birth, this only sort of makes sense to you. You see, my wife has two volumes for pain. I didn't know she had two volumes until we had a kid. The first volume, ah, ah. You need to understand, she could have lost a limb or scratched herself. And it's the same volume. Ah, that's about it. Ah, God, hurts. I have learned. <laughs> To panic first, run into the room, is everything okay? And then to think rationally. She probably just stubbed her toe. Right? Most people have more than two volumes, right? Most people have more than one volume that they treat every pain with. And I know that if you if you cut something on me, I grunt. But if I'm really hurt, I will yell. And they're different volumes. Not my wife. One. One for everything. Except childbirth. That was the loudest I've ever heard her express pain. It was loud. I'm not going to demonstrate it. Don't worry. It, it was so loud. My father-in-law heard it from down the hall. With the door closed. In the hospital room. Heard it from down the hall and went. <gasps> now I was in the room, good husband. I was in the room, but that noise, that anguish, that loud cry is what is what Isaiah is capturing here. That that anguish of oh my goodness, this is serious pain is what Isaiah is capturing here. And look at the message. Look at what he says. There will be no more anguish for her. Do you know that the earth groans for the unveiling of the sons of man? The earth groans and awaits for the redemption of mankind. 
literally in anguish. The word being like the sound of a horse who's grunting. Have you, I don't, have you ever <clears throat> that grunting that a horse does when they're just exhausted and exasperated? <clears throat> you know, that anguish feeling. The earth itself feels anguish waiting for the unveiling of Jesus' people. And here it says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. These are lands that are not uh, Israel. Um, But in later times, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the what? Of the what? Give it to me. Of nations. Galilee of the nations. Not Galilee of the people of Israel. Not Galilee of the sons of Jacob. Galilee of the nations. Where's Nazareth? Galilee. It's where the nations are. It's where the melting pot of the world was in biblical times. Everybody, every tribe and tongue and nation at some point ends up in Galilee. Why? No one knows. It's not a seaport. It's not, it doesn't, it's not on the sea. It doesn't make sense. You'd think it would be the Nile where the melting pot would be, but it's not. It's not, it's not over in some rich mining area where you have some major industries. It's not in a forest where there's cedars everywhere. It's by a lake. A big one, albeit still a lake. The Sea of Galilee. With the Jordan River going down. And at the bottom, the Dead Sea. Nations are at the Sea of Galilee. And why? Why? Is, is it there? Because God wants it there. That's the only conceivable reason why it's there. The only reason, the only conceivable reason why nations gravitate to a giant lake, to a big sea. The only conceivable reason. God wants it there because He is going to show Himself to the world from Galilee where everybody is invited to come, where everybody is shown to be. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Bethlehem. No, that's where salvation comes out of, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But it's Galilee of nations, where everything ends, where all the evil is done. Nations are invited. We are invited. Like we said at the beginning of the service, the Magi and the Shepherd, two completely different classes of people, both invited. One Jewish, one we don't know what race, religion, background they were. We just know that they saw a star and they're from the east. They're from that way. And they show up to worship the living God. So we jump into the prophecy that's given here, this beautiful poetry that Isaiah strings together. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them 
has light shine. So let's get the people here that he's talking about first. What are the type of people that are being talked about? One, they are people who walk in darkness. Their general practice of life is dark. Darkness, not light, not revelation, not beauty, not grace, not, not majesty. It's dark. They can't see. I don't know if you've ever tried to pick something up in the dark. I did two nights ago. Got out of my bed and tried to walk out, out of the bed into the restroom to get something and then come back out. And, and as I was going, I think I kicked everything possible that was, that was on the floor anywhere including things, stationary objects that I know are there all the time. These are people who walk in darkness, and when you walk in darkness, you invite pain. When you walk in darkness, you are inviting pain, because you can't see what you're doing, so you walk and you cause yourself harm. So first, these are people who walk in darkness. They have a general practice of life that trends towards dark. That trends towards darkness. Second, note, they don't just walk there. They chose to do it. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. They chose to live there like Lot, who pitches his tents by Sodom. When Abraham and Lot, remember, are dividing the land, Lot says, I'll go there, and he moves closer and closer to sinful, idolatrous people, while Abraham moves further and further away. Abraham lives by the oaks. He lives by the oaks. He, he builds by the oaks. Lot has a tent and continues to move closer and closer to sinful humanity. And further and further from God. And you see what happens. God in his mercy comes to Abraham. Abraham begs that God would save some people. God saves Lot. Not because Lot deserves it. Not because Lot's a good guy. Not because Lot has somehow merited it. Quite the contrary. Because God is merciful and chose to save one if you remember as they're leaving that tragic story where Lot's wife foolishly turns around when the Lord has said, do not even look back. And Lot ends up losing his wife. These are people who dwelt by choice in a land of deep darkness. They chose that life. Indeed, I tell you, those who do not know Christ they choose to live in wickedness. And they will argue with you about that choice. Often about how it's the right one to make. And you could elaborate on that all day long. About political ideologies and, and religious choices and, and atheistic concerns. You could, you could go on and on about the choice that people make to sin and to continue in their own sin. You could continue to discuss that for days and you wouldn't be wrong to do so. These are people who have chosen it. Now, they've chosen to dwell 
in a land of deep darkness. And yet, look at the unstoppable glory of God. People who chose to live in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. On them a light has shone. Now I want, I want you to imagine you're sitting in a uh, very dark, very dark cave. You can't see anything, and and there's a long corridor, and you know that there's a long corridor, a long hallway, and you are sitting in what feels like a rather comfortable chair, and there's uh, you know some sort of wonderful little creature that you're just petting sitting next to you. It's just so soft and sweet and licks your hands occasionally. It's really sweet. You know it's alive. It's there. So you're just petting it. And, and the walls, you, you imagine as you've stood up and kind of walked around felt you, that, that you're surrounded by beautiful acrylics and oil paintings because you feel the texture of them on the walls. You even imagine what some of them look like and how, how they must be beautiful. And you're sitting in this chair and it just feels great, and there's a, a warmth to it. There's a warmth. I mean, it's almost, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a comfortable warmth, but it's a warmth, and, and you're not cold, and, and you know, you're kind of, it's okay, and, and all of a sudden, a light shines from the distance. And as that light begins to progress down the hallway, and, you know, as light tends to do, it moves into the room as your eyes adjust, and and you begin to see and you begin to recognize that the walls are not beautiful oil paintings, but are disgusting, filth-covered walls that the textures you felt are gross and sewage. And the animal that's been licking your hand that you've been petting that seems so soft at the time is a gross rat. And the chair, the chair you've been sitting in is just a pile of dirty rags, the warmth you've felt is the heat coming off of the ground of the disgusting filth that you've been sitting in, and the tunnel at the end has a light, and there's a breeze coming through now, and you begin to recognize that the smell that you've gotten used to is getting stirred back up again, and it is disgusting. People who have dwelt in a land of darkness. You see... My point is that people who live in this state don't realize they live in this state. They don't realize they're in darkness. And as the light begins to progress, you begin to make the things around them look ugly, and they don't like it. So they do one of two things. Either they walk towards the light, they believe in Jesus, they begin to become exposed, and they begin to see the filth that they live in. Or, or they shut their eyes. So the state of humanity here is that they are in a land of darkness. And they live in darkness. And they are trapped in that darkness. And yet the light has shown. Consider the mercy of God that the light has shown. Not to people who were already good but that God very clearly emphasizes there is nobody good and the light showed up to me and to you and people who weren't good and not only were we not good, we didn't even know we weren't good. We were so wicked we thought that our wickedness was somehow good because of the wickedness of other wickedness around us. So we 
have the light shone on us. Indeed, look at what it says. On them has light shined. You see, in the darkness, there's no productivity or creative ability to advance. There's no ability to comprehend or overcome light. John chapter 1, remember what it says? The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A better translation might be, and the darkness has not understood it. The light has shone in the darkness, and it is so baffling that the darkness is just confused. You see, because darkness doesn't actually exist on its own. In order for darkness to exist, light must be absent. And Jesus is so great that he can't be absent. He shows up, And light shines on darkness. And darkness is revealed for what it is. And those who hide in darkness can no longer hide. The darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 1. You see, the message of Jesus did not come to people who were sitting in the light with everything coming perfectly about for them. The message of Jesus did not come to people who were uh, already in perfect condition. No, in fact, the message of Jesus came to people who desperately need a doctor, who are sick and dying and desperately need a doctor. The message of Jesus came to me, a young man who desperately needed salvation. The message of Jesus came to you, people who were in desperate need of light to expose our hearts and reveal us to the world so that we would and reveal us even to ourselves. So we might know ourselves. Indeed, the only way you can truly know yourself is if you know Jesus first, the Creator who designed you and knows what you're supposed to look like. Otherwise, you've got an identity crisis. So we see Jesus coming to those who are imperfect, broken, in a world where no one expected Him to show up. Remember what we've read the last several weeks. Herod didn't expect him. Jews didn't expect him. Nobody expected him to show up. So baffling and terrifying was it that when the Magi showed up, they were like, hey, we know we're late to the party. Where's the Son of God? And Herod, or where's the King of Jerusalem? And Herod went, ah, I'm the King of Jerusalem. And then said, oh, wait a second. Wait a, wait a second. Wait, wait a minute. Hey, where's, wait a, wait, where's, there's a king born? We missed it? Um, Hey, scribes, where was that supposed to happen? And they, without blinking, oh yeah, Bethlehem. It's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. You don't know that? We know. We knew that. Everybody knew that. It was supposed to happen in Bethlehem. And he went, Bethlehem? All right, well, um, I guess, um, Magi, uh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. It's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. And then he calls them back to him. He's like, hey, listen, when you find the baby, can you come tell me? I'd like to go worship him too. He's unaware, he's unready, he's unprepared, he knows where it is. Like, they weren't, it's not like God didn't tell them, they just weren't ready. They weren't ready for it. It wasn't, what happened? No one's ready for Jesus to show up, and when Jesus does, it makes everybody who didn't want him there uncomfortable. Everyone who didn't want him there uncomfortable. Do you remember when we looked at the high priest? At the high priest in this passage, in in how, how the angel of the Lord showed up to the high priest and proclaimed the coming of Jesus? No, we didn't, because it doesn't happen. You don't remember that, so don't nod. It doesn't happen. 
It doesn't happen. He doesn't look at the high priest. He doesn't talk to the high priest. Why? Because the high priest was perfectly happy in the dark. He was perfectly content sitting on the pile of filth, petting the rat and going, I live in a beautiful castle. He lived in the dark. And Jesus shows up and unstoppably shows up. Herod couldn't stop him. A puppet king couldn't destroy him. Uh, society couldn't stop him from coming. Mary and Joseph still get married. Societal expectations couldn't stop him. You know, that was incredibly, incredibly awkward for them. Mary is pregnant before they have their ceremony, before they're married, and it was a shame, honor-shame culture, and this was a shameful thing, and Joseph still takes her as his wife. Society couldn't stop Jesus. Authorities couldn't stop him. Herod tried to uh, kill him and couldn't stop him. Caesar Augustus had a big census and ends up moving Joseph from one city to another, playing into the hand of the cosmic creator. Do you think Caesar understood when he had a census that he was going to usher in the king of all glory? No. (laughs) He didn't know. He didn't know. He had no idea that that was going to happen. And yet, God does it. Indeed, even poverty couldn't stop him. Joseph and Mary are told they have to flee to Egypt, a very costly and expensive thing to do. And what happens right before they have to flee to Egypt? A bunch of random kings from the east show up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh and go, here? (laughs) Can you imagine? You've got your, you know, little toddler you know he's the king of the world. You know he's Jesus. You know who he is. You're doing your best to take care of all his needs and provide for him as he grows. And, and you're watching him learn to walk. And, and these kings show up from nowhere and go, hey, here's a bunch of money. And then you go to sleep that night and God goes, yeah, you need to run to uh, Egypt now. And your first thought, if you're a man, well, that's going to be expensive. Your second thought is, oh yeah, you just gave me a pile of gold. (laughs) Poverty couldn't stop him. Nothing could stop him. And look at what it says here in Isaiah 9, 3 and following. What God has done here for his people. You have multiplied the nation. Indeed, this is the promise to Abraham, right? Your, your descendants will be as the stars in the sky. You'll see more and more of them constantly. I don't know if you ever watched the night sky, but as you stand out, have you ever noticed how they, how they just kind of show up, how, how the stars just kind of show up as your eyes adjust? Like, they're there. They're there. They've been there the whole time, but, but they just kind of show up. And occasionally, you'll hear uh, NASA or somebody who looks at the clouds go, there's a new star in the sky, and they'll name it and just every once in a while. Here's a new one. It's over here. And that's how, how, this is how God extends his nation, just silent lights appearing. They just show up. You know, the, the mirac- I love the miraculous stories of people who become Christians. And they, they like, it's like there was an explosion and there's all these various things. And angels came down and they came down from heaven. And then he saw the light and he floated into the air and he became a Christian. I love those weird uh, stories, but they are few and far between. Most of our stories tend to be, yeah, I was talking to somebody about Jesus one day and I just kind of believed it. And I'm totally different now. Well, how did that happen? I don't know. It just, 
I've changed. Yeah, I went to this church for a while, heard this guy speak a whole bunch, and all of a sudden, I started believing what he said. I was working on a house and suddenly realized Jesus was true. All kinds of things. And they're, they're just show up, right? And stars just start to appear. And this is how God increases his nation. This is how God increases his, his kingdom. They just show up and they just begin to proclaim his glory. The light has come. The light has come. You have multiplied the nation as the light has shown up so he has shown on us and we have grown. We have grown. Abraham was promised stars and we see stars appearing in the night sky. This is how God increases his nation. Further, you have increased its joy. This is its festal celebration. This is its festal celebration. I, I think that this is one of the things that you occasionally see in church, in church worship. Occasionally. You don't see it all the time. You see it occasionally in church worship where it's like everybody is suddenly super excited. Often it has to do because we're singing some song everybody knows. Like, and everybody's like, yeah, what I know! Especially here at Sovereign Grace where I mess with you and sing new songs all the time. Right? So, like, you've got this, this cheer, like, you know, I could, I could set you off just by going, Holy, 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 Lord. And Jack was already taking the nursery. If he wasn't, he'd be singing along. Right? You've, you've had this song that just rises and people get excited and they begin to cheer. If you're in a youth group, it's usually some Hillsong song that somebody sang and, and they're super excited. If you're, if you're in an old traditional church, it's Amazing Grace. You know it. It's Amazing Grace. <laughs> amazing Grace. Everybody, yes, I love Right, and we get this exuberance and excitement and, and understand what, what God has done here is he has increased that for his people. Do you want abiding happiness and joy? It's found in Christ. It's found in Jesus. And, and joy just increases and explodes from the heart of Christians. Joy increases and he has increased his joy. Did you know did you know Gallup poll, this last uh, two weeks ago, just produced a poll of mental health improvement 2020. You know, the only group that saw an increase in mental health improvement were people who regularly attended regular weekly church worship services. That was the only group that reported mental health improvement. Group that attended regular church weekly services. The only group that felt better. Everyone else felt worse in 2020. But that group increased by 4% mental health capacity. Which is a large leap, by the way. Usually, uh, after a year, you get a 1-2% increase. This year, 2020, there's been a 10% decrease in most people's mental health in the majority of the population, except for one category of people, people who regularly attended weekly worship services. So if you were debating skipping this morning, you should feel good if you're here. And if you were debating skipping this morning and you're listening, 
That was not intended to be a jab. It's just a poll produced by Gallup. Please don't get mad at me. He has increased our joy. It is a joy unstoppable. If you don't believe that it's a joy unstoppable, you don't read the Bible enough. I mean, you can't look at Paul in the book of Philippians and go, yeah, Christians are supposed to be sad all the time. No, it's, you can't. It, it just doesn't work. Yes, we struggle. And yes, we struggle heavy with mighty, heavy weights. But we have a joy unstoppable that overcomes that in Christ Jesus. We have a joy that is found in Christ and in knowing Him that nothing can stop. So He's multiplied His nation. He's increased our joy. And then here's the response of those who have seen the light, have trusted, have opened our eyes to see, have had our eyes open to see Him. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Check this out. There's three things here that are incredible just in that one phrase. One, we rejoice to see the light. We rejoice before God. That indicates that we're more concerned with looking at Him than we are ourselves. Our view gets pointed up to Him and we rejoice in seeing Him. And we're completely exposed. You understand? This is like Adam and Eve in the garden. God shows up. Adam, where are you? And where is Adam? Hiding behind a bush. But these who the light has shown on, us, people who have trusted in Christ, we see Him and we come out into the light and we rejoice. We rejoice fully exposed before Him, knowing that we have no standing except that Jesus Christ has brought us out into the light and has changed us and has given us His clothing and has covered us with His righteousness. And we can stand before a holy, just God in righteousness that is not our own. Second, we have joy at the harvest. Like There's joy as in, as in at the harvest party. I don't know if you've ever been to a harvest party. Uh, some of you probably have, but those things are awesome. You know how much food is at a harvest party? Like, those things are incredible. Women bake for months for that thing. And the pies? Oh, the pies! They're, they're amazing. The mac and cheese is like they rolled the macaroni themselves. It is good. And everybody gathers around the table, and there's this massive outpouring of food and rejoicing. And it's not unusual for someone to break out randomly in song. Just think about how weird that would be if you're at a restaurant with a bunch of your friends and you're sitting down to eat. Nice meal. The waiter comes over. Can I get anyone anything to drink? Yeah, we'd like, I'd like a Coke. He'd like a Dr. Pepper. You go around with you know, sweet teas and, and you know, one weird friend who gets unsweet tea. You got all the other people. And then the waiter says, okay, I'll be right back. And as he leaves, you, you go, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, and the whole table erupts. You know how weird that would be? Yeah, that's what it's talking about. Joy is in at the harvest where you brought in all the food, the work is done, and it's now time to party. So first, 
Their eyes are on him. Second, they've got this joy that is exuberant and exploding. And then third, they are glad when they divide the spoil. I teach my kids this phrase, why do you look at your neighbor's plate? And they have to say, oh, don't let me down. Thanks. Ten points for you. You get chocolate after the service. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you both want to answer. So we, we learn this phrase, why do you look at your neighbor's plate? To see if they have enough. That's the response. Because we want to train our children that the only reason to look at what somebody else has is to make sure that they are taken care of. Not to compare what I have, not to want what they have, not to uh, see if I have the same amount, but to see that they have enough to provide for their needs and to take myself out of the equation. We want to train them to do that. Look at what's happening here. They are joyful when they divide the spoil. That's the attitude. They're dividing it out amongst each other, and they are happy to give to others. They're happy to hand it over. They're happy to give it away. Nobody is going, hey, I didn't get enough squash. I didn't get enough, I didn't get enough squash. I, didn't get, I want more squash. Nobody's doing that. Instead, they're happy to see that they're all provided for. There's an abundance here and a joy here. So we see this rejoicing over sharing Verse 4, now we see the result of some things that happen in us. So we've got this, uh, in, in us we see that we rejoice because we see the heavens. We've got this joy in us and, and we're glad to divide the spoil. Second, we see for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as, in the day, as on the day of Midian. So Jesus' appearance breaks the staff and the rod of oppression. This is huge. Do you understand that you have been made to live above this world's rulers? As a Christian, you have a king who is greater than all of this world's rulers. Who left us an example of how to walk. There's a beautiful scene in the Bible when Jesus is confronted about the poll tax. And he goes to Peter and he says, Hey, go to the shore. Get the coin out of the fish that I put there. He didn't say it, he put it there. He said, Go get a fish. Jesus, Peter goes to the shore, finds a fish, picks it up. There's a coin in the fish's mouth. He brings, I don't know if he let the fish go, I don't remember. But he, he brings the, the coin to Jesus and hands it to him. And Jesus goes, Whose image is on this coin? You know the story. And everybody goes, Caesar's! And he goes, Well, you're wrong, but... Uh, if it's Caesar's, let Caesar have it. Basically looking at them going, who cares if they're asking for taxes? There's something more important going on here. You see, the fish. Don't miss the fact that there's a fish on the shore with a coin in its mouth that Peter was able to pick up with his hands and bring to Jesus. At some point, Jesus had some fish in some body of water, swallows some coin that he then spit to the front of his mouth and lay up on the shore for Peter to come get it. There's no theological exegesis you can do to explain that away. God provides for their every need, even their taxes. You see, he doesn't just make you to live a... a in a different kingdom, he rather sets you in a kingdom that's above this one. 
And he says, obey the law of the land. They can't do anything to you anyway. You don't even belong here. Your home is in heaven. The law of the land serves as a puppet for me. I mean, Caesar had a census and ushered in the Messiah. Censuses are considered a lack of faith to God. He tells Israel never to do it. Don't take a census. I'll count for you. Just a side note for any pastors that are listening. Don't count. God doesn't seem to like that. Back on top. Verse 5. He breaks, or sorry, verse 4. He breaks the, the rod of the oppressor. So he breaks the rod of the oppressor. And we see that first in obvious ways that Christians live above government. Second, we see it in spiritual truth that the oppression of sin has been removed from us. We've been set free from sin and death and are now His. We now live in His kingdom. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling... This is a beautiful, beautiful picture. This is poetry at its finest here. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That which was used in warfare, which is covered in filth and blood and deserves destruction, will be burned in the fire, but not unproductively. It will be used as fuel to fuel fire, which we use for everything. This former life will be thrown away, but burned in order to give us light. And then verse 6, we see the beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. He shall have the, the symbols of government on his shoulders. You know, the signet that says, that guy's important. The, the military insignias in Judaism, it, it was the, the stones of Israel with the names of the people on them that the high priest wore on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. In other words, this is the guy, this is the king, this is the Lord, and he will rule. And he will rule. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, I wish we had time to unpack all of those as far as they go, but we don't. So let's go. He shall be called Wonderful. First, he's called Wonderful. It's its own word, Wonderful. He's called Wonderful. Amazing, awesome, incredible. You should look at Jesus and go, wow. He's called Wonderful. Second, he's called Counselor. He's the one that you can go to with your problems. He's the one that you can go to with intimacy. He's the one that you can go to to have things taken care of. He will be called Mighty God, the army leader, the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, the God who is mighty and sustaining above all things, who stands at the front. Do you remember the picture that we're given in the prophet Zechariah when he lands on the mountain of olives and all of a sudden the war is over? There's a big split in the land and all who want rescue run through that split to Zion. And the God Almighty is standing for His people. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. You can't lose your sonship with Him precisely because He never dies. And you're His. 
He has taken you as his own child, and you belong to him. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace, the, the, the king who owns peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is king over all things. He is unstoppable. Indeed, Matthew quotes this passage right when Jesus starts his public ministry. Right as Jesus starts his public ministry, Matthew quotes this this prophecy. The light has shone. Here he is. So just think about Jesus' public ministry for a minute. And I want you to think over 2020. I want you to think over since 2015 when this church, uh, or 2016 when this church started. Just think for a minute. Just like in his birth. Society couldn't stop him. Authorities couldn't stop him. Poverty couldn't stop him. Socially unacceptable caste systems couldn't stop him. In the same way, death of a loved one couldn't stop him. Lazarus dies. Jesus walks in and resurrects him. The girl is dead on the bed. And Jesus says what? Little girl, get up. Talitha kum. Little girl, get up. And she rises from the dead. The death of a loved one couldn't stop him. Disease couldn't stop him. He's walking down the road and the diseased woman touches the hem of his robe and, he's, and she's healed. Lepers come to him and they are suddenly healed. The man with the crippled hand who's been crippled uh, for the majority of his life walks to Jesus. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. He does it. Cripple couldn't stop him. He couldn't stop redemption. Infirmities couldn't stop redemption. You've got the blind man on the side of the road who's been begging for years and Jesus rubs dirt in his eyes and says, go wash this off. Without talking to him, mind you. It's the most awkward scene in the Bible. He just spits on some dirt and rubs dirt in his eyes and goes, go wash this off in the pool that I tell you to go to. And he goes and he does and all of a sudden he can see. You've got the other story of the blind guy who Jesus talks to and rubs his eyes and scales fall from his eyes. And you've got the, the story of the man lame who's been sitting by the pool that Jesus shows up to and is like, hey, pick up your bed and walk. And the guy's like, all right. And he picks up his bed and he's, not, I think, never putting that thing down again. He's going to figure out how to sleep standing up. They couldn't stop him. Oppressive governments couldn't stop him. Rome tries to stop him. You do realize that, don't you? Rome tries to stop him by, one, nullifying him first. Pilate tries to nullify him and go, he's not important, and he ends up being important, and so Pilate then tries to kill him. The Jewish religious system couldn't stop him. Redemption can't be stopped. The Lord Jesus is an unstoppable force, and guys... We know Him. Indeed, He lives in us. He's unstoppable in us.